Hello, I'm Karsten Knox. This is Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. This month on the podcast, I'm asking cinephiles about their picks for the best films of the 2010s. On this episode, I'll speak to Ryan McNutt. He's a pop culture writer with a focus on music, but a lot of other interests as well. We sat down at the Halifax Central Library to discuss one of his picks for the best movies of the decade, Star Wars The Last Jedi, a conversation that spilled into our thoughts on the newest film in that franchise, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Spoilers for both films up ahead. to have you on the podcast for some time and uh, I am talking to people about their favorite films of the past decade so I know you have sort of in your head uh, a rough list one of the films you suggested we might talk about is uh, Mad Max Fury Road which is on my in my top 10 because of the the craze this week around Star Wars we decided that's the film that we're going to talk about specifically Star Wars The Last Jedi which is not the one in cinemas now but the last one but before we get on to that, why do you love Mad Max Fury Road so much? I can't believe it got made. Uh, and, you know, um, it's actually an interesting crossover with my interest in The Last Jedi. In that I have a real soft spot for um, blockbuster widescreen filmmaking that clearly has a sense of authorship and identity in how it's done. Um, and... Uh, when I saw Fury Road, it's very clearly not the product of a corporate vision, but you can see at the same time, you know, why it is that it was approved and accepted. You know, that we, we have in this era in which uh, companies and, and the corporations that run our movie cinemas are obsessed with IP, and as lo- they'll make almost anything if it has a familiar name on it, often to uh, very poor effect from both a box office and a film perspective. But in this case, they let George Miller make a Mad Max movie for the first time in three decades. Uh, and it's such... It, one, it's a miraculous film from a visual perspective, from a, a stunt perspective. Um, but the fact that embedded within it is is a story where actually Max isn't the protagonist. Furiosa is the protagonist. The fact that it's a deeply feminist film. The fact that it... Um, it embeds, embeds this progressive message inside this big, you know, uh, almost shocking blockbuster. And the fact that just there's so many things in it that, like, I, I just, you know, my jaw would just drop. I mean, I mean, I was obsessed for months with the Doof Warrior, the guitarist, and, and everything about why does that character exist? How is it part of, of this world? And, you know, it's, it's there's, it, it meets both the need to have a story and a plot and themes that are compelling but also from a visual design perspective has something to look at it in nearly every frame and then that, that's really important you know what i don't think i could have put it any better than that i absolutely agree on every point and i had no idea what to expect going in you know i i love the road warrior um uh, in particular but uh you know and obviously tom hardy and charles theron are, are great actors but i i honestly i went in uncertain what this was going to be and for it to be such a triumph and to be have it so universally recognized as such is really rewarding not that things like academy award nominations and whatnot you know mean the you know the be all and end all but to sort of see this movie that like audiences loved critics loved the industry all loved all from you know this 
from the the director of Happy Feet and Babe Pig in the City uh, coming back to that world and to just succeed so wildly at it. And wild, I think, is, is, is the correct word. Yeah, he's a filmmaker in his 70s, and he made that film. I mean, that's really an achievement. I, uh, I, I'd be exhausted at, at, like, 37 making that film. I don't know how he does it, and I, I really hope he's got one more in him. I do, too, though I can't imagine how it could be any better than that. Mm. Um, okay, so we absolutely agree on Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the topic uh, at hand, uh, recent Star Wars movies. Now, I feel like I should say, just to level the playing field, if, if, if necessary, that um, I am a fan of the recent, the last three films mm-hmm. in this series, um, but I recognize how much they play off the tropes of the original in in ways that feel very repetitive and I have written about that um, I think maybe The Force Awakens is the most guilty of that it is the most like uh, Star Wars uh, Episode 4 A New Hope and The Last Jedi is the least where it is it takes the most risks I can see that for sure but watching it again the other night I realized how much it's like Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. you know you've got your young confused uh, Jedi warrior in training in some remote planet. She's being mentored by this older Jedi who she doesn't understand. And then she has sort of a moment of darkness where she sees a potential future and she's afraid and uncertain, but she has to leave before it feels like her training is complete. Mm-hmm. All of that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, why is this so familiar? Oh, right, because it's just like Empire. Um, there are things about the last Jedi that really bother me. Um, that's actually not one of them, really. I mean, I just recognize it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the new film, which we just saw the other night, has those aspects to it as well. And and with J.J. Abrams, you're going to get it uh, a lot more on the nose. Mm-hmm. Now, I you said that The Last Jedi would make your list of the best films of the decade. Uh, that surprises me. Mm-hmm. Why is that the case? It honestly surprises me, too. You know, when I was thinking about what film I wanted to talk about here with you is, is I, I was thinking about, obviously, films like Mad Max and uh, Creed and uh, Social Network and all the typical ones that are on my list and a few personal favorites, like a movie like Sing Street that I love that would be kind of in the mix. Oh, my gosh, um, that's also on my list, oh, too. It's, Amazing. It's such a wonderful film. And so there's ones like that that we feel there. And the one that surprised me was The Last Jedi. There was a, a, a Twitter sort of meme going around a couple years ago where they asked people to list your favorite films of each year of the decade and a lot of those predictable ones for not for 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 me that were predictable to me were on there and then i got to 2017 and i was like i think it's the last jedi and it, you know I, my my relationship with star wars is you know i grew up with those movies watching them over and over again on worn out vhs tapes taped off of of the tv airings um, but you know, in my in my adult life, I, I recognize that as much as I enjoy them, that you know they are fundamentally kids' films, and with with sort of a bit of, of depth at various points. But when I looked at the Last Jedi, the film really stuck with me on many levels over the last couple of years. So that makes it interesting for me to consider. But it's also that I think the dialogue that the film sparked, the backlash against the film, and now in the Rise of Skywalker out this 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 week, you see an actual, not just an extra textual debate about The Last Jedi, but 
the Rise of Skywalker is its own missive in the debate over The Last Jedi and what it is. And that makes it even more fascinating to me that, that, that there's sort of like a, a film rebuttal in many ways, I think, to another... I th- if we're to think of like a corporately managed trilogy where the films feel like they're in de- open debate with each other, but they kind of do. And so, so you know, I, I think that the, the discussion over The Last Jedi speaks as much or more to how we talk about blockbuster cinema and the supremacy of what was once nerd and geek culture as much as Marvel's dominance does this decade. And uh, the backlash about it and the debate over it sort of speaks to a thing that um, there was an essay on the website Gen this this month by Alex uh, Papademus talking about the supremacy of comic book movies in our culture. And he sort of raises the question that how are we doing now that, that nerds and geek culture is the overlords of pop culture and his conclusion is not great and i think the last jedi's reaction to it is is part of that dialogue in other words you mentioned the reaction to last jedi and the incredible negative response the the ridiculous effort to have it removed from the canon and all that stupidity yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, there was an online petition that got a hundred thousand participants like a hundred thousand people took the time to click on buttons saying that the last jedi should be stricken from canon and as much as that's like surprising to me it's also kind of speaks to this this idea of what what these films mean to people yeah yeah and i uh, i find it all fascinating too and i i but i to a point like it's also a little bit exhausting and Mm -hmm going back to watch The Last Jedi again the, there were things about it I liked more revisiting it two years after I first saw it. There were, I really enjoyed the Skywalker arc. The fact that Luke is embittered. That he is kind of bristly and unpleasant and what he says to Ray, he's like, what did you think was going to happen? Like, I came all the way out here. Do you think I came out here to the, the most unfindable place in the universe? That was a surprise and that was one of the big surprises, but it made sense to me that, that Luke would have problems after all he went through and that and given the what happened in the intervening years, which we learned, the, uh, his perceived failure regarding Ben Solo. I get, I get it. I get that. I really thought that was a really nice surprise and it, it set up a film that went places I didn't know it was going to go. And so, so here's the question that's interesting to me is, if that makes sense to you, and I think it makes sense to me, and I think it's a very logical next step to what Abrams and writer Lawrence Kasdan set up in The Force Awakens, which is that Luke's isolated himself, he was upset with what happened with Ben Solo, and he's not helping his friends who clearly are in need. The only logical conclusion of that is that he doesn't want to be found. Um, Why do so many Star Wars quote fans have problems with that because the, 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 the portrayal of Luke is one of the top complaints that people have about this film. Why did they, did they not accept that version of Luke Skywalker? That is a question I can't answer, but it's a good question to ask. I also really like the connection between Ray and Kylo Ren. Like, it, it's explained, you know, it's explained away in a plot point by Snoke, but then it continues in the new film, and I, I really enjoy that. I think they have genuine chemistry, those actors, and I think it's one of the part of the films that roots you emotionally in the story, where there's so much other stuff going on. It means, however, that other supporting characters 
who may have been considered leading characters like Finn. I think they set him up to be like one of the leads in the story. He's underserved. And I think there is a bunch of characters in Jedi and in The Rise of Skywalker that are underserved. Um, and there are plot issues that I so struggle with. In Jedi, it's the idea that the rebellion are trying to escape in ships and the uh, First Order ships are right behind them but can't catch them. So they're sort of stuck in this like continual chase for the whole second act of the film while characters are able to leave the ship and then come back and all that just I can't get my head my head around that that just it drove me nuts when I first watched it watching again I'm just like I still don't understand all right so let me make the case at least on a character level uh, for The Last Jedi because I think that one of the things that distinguishes this film from the other modern Star Wars films and honestly elevates it in blockbuster filmmaking in general is how Johnson has constructed a film not designed around what things need to happen but how these characters need to get to a place where they can we can go to the next level in a final climactic movie so Finn's character arc I agree with you the fact that one ship can seemingly sneak away is a bit of a problem I will uh, fully admit that one but the, the, the story arc that involves Finn and Rose is one of the things that a lot of detractors have complaints about. To me, it is completes the journey of Finn's character that Abrams does not finish in The Force Awakens. Finn's arc is clearly meant to be the stormtrooper who flees, but has to learn to be part of this rebellion to see what the rebellion means. And in The Force Awakens, Finn never has that moment. He never has the realization that he's part of this bigger movement. In fact, he's about to leave and flee the Resistance when Rey gets kidnapped. So his whole motivation for the rest of the film is saving Rey. And he gets knocked out of the final battle and is, is unconscious for the end of the film. His whole arc is stopped. So what Johnson does is says, okay, how do we complete this arc? And he completes the arc by giving him a plot line that does two things I think are really valuable to both the film and the Star Wars universe. One, he gives two different paths for him forward in the characters of Rose and in the Codebreaker played by Benicio Del Toro. The Rose character is a true believer. The Benicio Del Toro character is someone who says, everybody's bad in this world. Go on your own. Live it there. And he gets to see where those two character arcs go. And he sees the darkness at the end of the Nihilist. And he sees the, the, the opportunities for community and believing in the true believer in Rose. Um, so that's the first thing it does. is It actually completes the arc, leading to you know the, the great fight against his, his nemesis. And, uh, and he gets to kind of prove that he meant to be there. The second thing it does is it, it expands the world of Star Wars to show why, why these people are actually fighting for. And, you know, for all the sort of features of, of Lucas's original trilogy, he intentionally keeps the story really small and focused on these small group of characters, and you assume the Empire is bad, and you assume the main characters are good. And I think that works for the kind of serialized storytelling Lucas was, was working in. But there's something more modern and compelling to me in the 21st century about actually showing a bit what you're fighting for. And so the whole casino plot line actually begins to show a bit of what uh, wealth and excess versus poverty that kind of the empire model creates. It showcased in the First Order model, I guess, in the new movies. And it begins to introduce the idea of other people who are engaging with the, the both the plight and also the mythology of the world. And I think both of those things are really, really valuable and compelling angles that make the movie and potentially the Star Wars saga better. Mm. Yeah, you know, I can see your point, absolutely. Um, 
that kind of depth mm. and a broadening of the universe mm. and understanding how people outside the rebellion mm. would still be affected by what yeah. they're trying to do. And so then, you know, take the other characters of the core plot. So Poe Dameron, who is the hotshot fighter pilot played by Oscar Isaac, that's literally his only character development in The Force Awakens, and he's cool, and it's fun, but he does nothing. There's, there's no arc, there's nothing. So Ryan Johnson looks at him and says, okay, what is the arc that we give this character? How do we actually move him along? And the answer is, well, what's the character flaw of a, of a, of a hotshot pilot? It's being too hotshot. It's learning that that's not always what leadership means. And if this character is ultimately going to become the military leader of this of this um, resistance, which seems the logical path for, for where that character should go, we need to challenge his thinking. And, and so his whole engagement with Admiral Hodo and with Leia is about having him learn how to be a leader so at the end of the film, he's the next logical person to take this resistance to the next level and that's what that story arc does i think you've done a great job um explaining why luke's character arc is so compelling and not only does luke's arc show a character in in challenge but it leads to a place that this is one of the things about the debate over the film that, that confounds me is that the film is often being seen as critical of star wars and critical of its own mythology but the end point actually is a celebration of myth and of legend it just is, is, it acknowledges the complications along the way. Luke chooses to use whatever force power he has to embed himself as a myth going forward through the hope that he can inspire the next wave of, of resistance and rebellion. So it's, it's, a, it's a story that is challenging things in the interim but leads to a place that really is much more in line, I think, with the Joseph Campbell foundations of the Star Wars mythology in general than a lot of other films in the series have gotten to. And then Ray's storyline, which is, I think, one of the other big stumbling blocks for the, the backlash against the film, is that you have a character whose whole quest is for, for identity and for meaning. And Johnson has Kylo Ren tell her that she is nothing, that she has nobody, that her parents are junk, and she is useless in this universe. And she's able to resist his call to join her and instantly be something to continue to seek out who she wants to be on her own terms. That to me is incredibly compelling. So rather than create a storyline and a movie around what plot mechanics have to happen to move a story forward, Johnson has built a film that identifies where these characters need to go, has built a story that in my mind works and is compelling around that, um, and leaves them all in a much more deep, interesting place to then be carried on into the franchise. And I found myself more, you know, my reaction to The Force Awakens, maybe it's best to kind of understand, is that when I saw The Force Awakens, I was like, I was glad that Disney had gotten people excited about Star Wars again. I think the film is fine. But revisiting it, th there's nothing really there other than getting you excited for the next films because, as your point, there's a lot of redundancy narratively and not in a way that's necessarily interesting. Um, but I love the characters and how they were drawn, and I was really excited about what happens next. And, uh, you know, for me, I left The Last Jedi buzzing because I felt like Johnson had pushed these characters further had brought to life their conflicts, had done so in a way that was surprising and added depth to the universe, and done so in a film that is 
by far the most beautiful looking Star Wars films and you know with apologies to a few other films like Fury Road deserves to be ranked as one of the best looking blockbusters of the decade he understood color he understood space I mean physical space as, as a filmmaker I, I think Johnson is the most talented visual filmmaker to make a Star Wars film that is also a pretty good argument for it uh, I think that hmm, part of the problem that maybe I had coming out of the Last Jedi, which I liked, just not as much as you did. Uh, but uh, I don't know that I was in love with the characters in the same way that I was in love with the characters in the original film. And, you know, we were talking about the negative reaction to The Last Jedi, and I'm almost afraid to recognize this and go there, but I have to because it seems to me pretty obvious, is that the lead characters in that film are women and they are making decisions. They are the smart ones. Mm -hmm. They are the ones, the, you know, Admiral Holdo and Leah, and uh, they are the ones that are actually showing the way forward. And the hotshot pilot is, is seen to be, he, he makes a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. and it costs lives. Yeah. For, and then our, our longtime hero is a curmudgeonly old guy who has become a hermit. And I think especially the male fan base of Star Wars had a hard time with all of that. Yeah, so, you know, let's talk through a couple of, of... We talked about the Luke concern a little bit. Um, I think you've hit upon one of the stumbling blocks, and whenever a backlash to any piece of pop culture hits, it's always tough to decide what is context and what is subtext. Um, and certainly, at the very least, the subtext, and possibly even beyond that, is, is part of, of the gender dynamic of the film, in that it is sort of, uh, you know, the, the male characters kind of... They, they have to do the most learning in the film, and usually at, at the beckon of, of sort of more authoritative uh, female characters. We talked about the Luke storyline. We talked a little bit about the Casino Planet storyline. There's another point of main detraction. Um, and we talked a little bit about the epiphany of Ray's origin. The one we didn't talk about is, and it ties into me, the other big issue, I think, in the dialogue over the film, is the fact that Supreme Leader Snoke, who is ostensibly been set up through a film and a half as the big bad of the franchise and these new movies, we finally get to encounter him in person and he's killed and he's killed by Kylo Ren in a wonderfully shocking moment where you realize that perhaps Ren might be for a minute on the good side before you realize that really it's power he's looking for uh, followed by in my opinion the best lightsaber duel in the entire Star Wars trilogy from both an aesthetic and an emotional perspective with apologies to the one in Return of the Jedi but just an amazing sequence that just is, is, is more memorable than any other moment in these, these new films. But people were upset that they didn't know who, who Snoke was. They didn't get to see what, what we just killed just like that. And I think that, you know, I've, I've talked about why I love this film because it, it, it foregrounds these characters and character development. It's not to answer J.J. Abrams' mystery box style questions of who people are and how, and how this all connects together. It's, it's somewhat uninterested in that. And I really think that our modern blockbuster filmmaking and the, the, our discussions we have about it foreground plot and don't consider character and theme nearly enough. And I think it's really interesting now with The Rise of Skywalker is a film that is all plot. All, there's barely any character development. No, it's plot, 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 plot. Find this, do that, uncover this, learn that. So this obsession with the what is happening and versus the why and the how. To me, is something that I see in discussions about Marvel films, I see in discussion about really film in general. We find value in pop culture because we can talk about it, we can debate about it, we can tweet about it, we can 
we can engage in these dialogues. And as that becomes more and more, the language and things we talk about are about plot and what's happening and moments of surprise and twist, which is such a limited, in my view, range of what film is and what film can do. And so the reaction to the Snow plot line, even the Luke plot line, and the plot line about Ray and who she is and what that is, it all speaks to that. There seems to be this outrage that the film didn't give twisty, world-bending answers to these questions. When the answers, in my opinion, The Last Jedi gave to those questions were far more conceptually compelling and potentially powerful had they been followed through on. Now I can understand better your issues around the rise of Skywalker, given the repudiation of some of that stuff that Johnson brought to the story. Some of that I was fine with. I think if we didn't have the internet and we didn't have this conversation, Mm -hmm. but I think the conversation has become part of the whole experience of the movie, I think we might consider those just red herrings. Mm -hmm. In a serialized story, we reveal something, the next chapter we reveal something different. It's a, it's a twist, it's a revelation, and sometimes we're okay with that, sometimes we're not, because it just feels unearned. And I think what you're saying about The Rise of Skywalker is a lot of these changes, they just feel like, oh, we want to get back on track with, with what is going to please the crowd rather than what's interesting or challenging. Yeah, well, yeah. so you know, the, the conclusion of The Last Jedi is the suggestion that, that the Force has been awakened in Ray, an ordinary person as the counterbalance to the bloodline force of Kylo Ren. And what's more, in the great final scene that The Rise of Skywalker does nothing with, um, we see a hint of the possibility that the force is coming alive in other people too in different ways. How is that not more compelling than what The Rise of Skywalker suggests actually is going on without spoiling for anybody there? But um, you know, it suggests a, a, a version of why Rey is powerful and why the Force is powerful in her that is just so much less interesting to me. But if you're interested in this as a sort of insular plot mechanic structure, probably fits a bit better. Yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe, and again, there are spoilers ahead, but I think that's the part of The Rise of Skywalker that I had the most trouble with, that stepping back from the idea that uh, that Rey comes from nothing and in fact she is descended from a prominent character this is something i talked to dave howlett about and he was saying how isn't it and i have to agree with him isn't it more important for viewers and for everybody isn't the message more important that she is making something of herself and she has this connection to this faith this force given that she really comes from nothing i mean isn't that kind of an awesome 21st century progressive way to look at it rather than the thought that special people are only descended from other prominent people. I spent most of the rise of Skywalker just with, and and, you know, my bias as a lover of The Last Jedi fully acknowledge, but I spent the whole time just sort of like befuddled. Like, like I don't understand the choice, how the choices it makes are compelling to all but a sort of subset of of the fan culture and i think that is one of the things that this debate over the last jedi uh suggests that i think is very concerning for the future of blockbuster and big screen cinema you know i'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the spielberg era like i i believe that a film can be populist be done with 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 smarts with character with thematic resonance and, you know, I, I use Spielberg as, as the example because nobody's probably done it better more often than him. 
and I believe that Star Wars at its best has been part of that dialogue. I think Marvel at its best is part of that dialogue. And it's great when you have a film come together like Endgame uh, for the, in the Avengers uh, series that manages to both be service to fandom but also kind of work on its own terms. Even if it feels more like a, like a TV series finale than a movie, it's a really great TV series finale. And, and it really, really leaves everybody feeling good. So sometimes they can come together. But I, I worry that The Last Jedi now being sort of replaced and it's, it was done by The Rise of Skywalker suggests more that rather than pushing the audience in any way, shape, or form, that the loudest and most vocal elements of fandom um, deserve or warrant being pandered to. And the script that uh, Academy Award-winning screenwriter Chris Terrio, who has followed up his Argo Award with Batman vs. Superman and Justice League, what he and J.J. Abrams have done is create a film that I think if someone already loves Star Wars and doesn't need to learn anything new about these characters can have a good time with but is limited and I think in its appeal outside of that of the already believer and I, I think that approach to culture and that approach to any kind of cinema let alone blockbuster is snobby and elitist and does not welcome new people to the table mm. alright wow you make a good argument I'm not sure what to say to that other than um, I could talk a little bit about why I liked The Rise of Skywalker. And I would say that even though I was pretty critical of it, especially that first act, which I was just like, ugh, do we need more of this? It won me over with that core connection between Rey and between Kylo Ren and his... I felt his redemption coming, because that's the story of this whole series, and he is a Skywalker. As much as I actually sort of enjoyed the fact that uh, Ryan Johnson doubled down on his conviction that he is going to be the representative, the supreme leader of the dark side. I actually did wind up really liking where they took him and Ray, and it was because of their connection, it was because of the humor that he actually, Adam Driver, brought moments of humor that I didn't expect. And I like the humor in the film overall. I like that C-3PO had much more to do because he brings so much of of what I know, I love about Star Wars. And in the end, Mm -hmm. I think I just was won over emotionally Mm -hmm. by what I recognize from my, I mean, and I won't deny it, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of nostalgia in this. What I recognize I loved about Star Wars when I was a kid and I felt like the the sense of closure I got, I didn't even know I wanted it, but I got it. So uh, a couple thoughts on that. One, uh, I agree, 3PO, and the use of 3PO is one of my favorite parts of um, The Rise of Skywalker. I feel like part of the reason 3PO has been kind of sidelined in these new movies is because, honestly, Lucas used him so badly in the prequel trilogy and clearly had lost all sense of his tone of humor. It took a while to find again, and I think both Abrams and Johnson but other outlets for humor. I think The Last Jedi, with apologies to Empire, might be the funniest Star Wars film. But... 3PO back as a source of humor was wonderful. Um, I think where I think you and I separate on the film is is you were able to get past the first act and find things to enjoy. To me, all the character beats and motivations in that film rely on you buying into that first act. And the first act is just MacGuffin garbage after MacGuffin garbage. And I'm with you on continuing to find Rey and Kylo Ren's arc compelling. But I think it's compelling because of the work set up in... The Force Awakens, and especially in The Last Jedi, I don't think, other than bringing it to, I guess, a sort of logical conclusion, I'm not sure what Abrams and Terrio adds to it that wasn't already built in those previous films. And the fact that they have to rely on a weird uh, ghost memory to help us get us to the edge, uh, 
further reinforces to me what, what felt to me like natural character movement in The Last Jedi feels so artificial here. Yeah. And, Star and, Wars shouldn't have flashbacks. I was yeah. against all of those. <laughs> that, 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 that said, to talk about The Last Jedi for a second, I think the way in which flashbacks are used in that film to tell the story of what happened between Luke and Kylo Ren is is actually compelling both from obviously kind of just giving us something we didn't have before, but also continuing to build a new link between Star Wars and Kurosawa, which is foundational by going so aggressively Rashomon. And, and I, 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 I like that continued kind of intertextual dialogue between the different filmmakers. Damn, that is a good point. I wasn't a fan of it, but yeah, <laughs> you bring up Kurosawa, I'm like, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, so, you know, I... I, um, I so the first act of Rise of Skywalker just really didn't work for me. I'll, I'll tell you the moment... And it, I think very clearly we're in spoiler territory here, and, and that's fine for everybody listening by this point, hopefully. The moment that I, I, I was fine with accepting that The Rise of Skywalker was not a movie for me. It's not what I wanted from Star Wars. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for, for certain elements of fandom. I think from a, a kids and having action figures perspective, there's lots of fun things that happen sensibly. I, I wish it was motivated by something a little more depth, but whatever. It's not my thing. The moment where I became, I had almost became actively angry at the film is in the final finale when they're celebrating. And Max, the little orange character who was really compelling in The Force Awakens and hasn't really figured, even, even, even Johnson hasn't really figured out how to do with her a little bit. She says, Chewie, this is for you. And she hands Chewie a medal. So this scene has no reason to exist in this movie. It has no reason to exist in the context of the Star Wars universe. This scene only exists because there's been people online for years talking about how come Chewie doesn't get a medal in the last scene of, of Episode 4, A New Hope. This scene doesn't exist in the movie. It exists only as empty, vacant fan service for a small subset of internet fandom. And th- that, that's, that to me is symptomatic of the entire issue I have with The Rise of Skywalker is that is it feels like it's being written with a Coles Notes version of checking boxes for a certain subset of Star Wars fandom. And I don't think that's the way to create a more uh, inclusive, accessible, populist blockbuster. Right, right. That goes towards that argument. And I appreciate that. Um, I loved it. Mm-hmm. it I, as soon as I actually welled up with tears when I saw that scene, I was like, oh my gosh, I'd, I hadn't thought about it. It hadn't been expected. I certainly didn't imagine they would include it. But the moment they did, I was like, yeah, I loved it. It, 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 it absolutely won over all my critical faculties. Maybe. Completely different reaction. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, I guess it just, it's, you know, and, and you know, to your point about the first act of the film, I, I think... You know, actually, I'm going to make a bit of, of a comparison, and I won't spoil this other piece of art, but it reminded me a little bit of the final episode of the TV series How I Met Your Mother. And I'm not sure if, if a lot of your, your listeners have followed that series all the way through to its end, but the ending of that series was very clearly an ending they, they had planned or had in mind in season one. And the season's now gone for nine seasons. And it was actually... It fit what the show originally was, but was incongruous to where the actual show had evolved, and it felt like a, like a betrayal for many fans, being like, well, this doesn't make sense, because it doesn't make sense in the context of what came before. And I got that feeling throughout The Rise of Skywalker, which is that these are our ideas Abrams might have had in talking with, with Kasdan originally, but you know the way this series worked is it was handed off to a different filmmaker, and the plot went in different ways. And rather than than taking and building on that or responding to it in a way that would bring it somewhere, 
the things they took from Johnson were the most shallow things, like there's an X-Wing buried on Luke's planet, and Ray has some Jedi text, let's find a stupid map to a knife in there. They, they took the most basic things, and didn't take any of the thematic stuff, didn't take any of the new character stuff, and really just moved on with a plot around Emperor Palpatine that uh, never really is hinted at in other, either of the two films, and really requires you to buy into, actually you know, feel the impact of this movie. And, you know, it's it's full of... It's, it's funny, you know, Karsten, you know, and, and I think this sort of gets to, you know, how we engage with film, because, you know, you're like, you enjoy the film, so a movie, a film, I think like the Chewy Metal, it, it worked for you because you, you're kind of buying in a little bit to the whole thing, whereas me, it was it was emblematic of everything wrong with it. I, I, I think, I think to, you know, there's a scene in the movie where they have a knife and she, the knife has a compass and the compass just happens to match the outline of the crashed Death Star. Why would anybody design a knife to work like that? And, and yet, you know, so, so that infuriated me. But, you know, I have less of an issue in The Last Jedi with the fact that, like, their ship can leave when other ships seem to can't. Like, so, so you know, I, I think it comes down to, you know, you, you, lots of movies, these movies have silly things. I think it's a matter of what matters most at the big picture of them. And for me, the big picture of The Last Jedi from a character, from a thematic, from a visual filmmaking perspective is all so uh, wondrous and exciting that I can forget the little things. The Rise of Skywalker felt like a film full of infuriating big and little things for me, just stacked one upon the other. Power to those who enjoy it. It, it was not the Star Wars movie I wanted to see. You've given me a lot to think about here, Ryan. <laughs> okay, so before we go, I should ask you, just because I'm curious, have you watched The Mandalorian? No, we've not started The Mandalorian yet. The uh, uh, We're trying to get to it maybe over the holidays. It's just been a busy month. But uh, I am excited to get to it because I think people seem to be responding really well to it. I also think that the, the child, as popularly known as Baby Yoda, is really exciting because I've been thinking for a while, and, and my wife said this idea first, and now I'm totally on board with it. If Star Wars wants to continue and they want to be just fully embraced product development and toys and whatnot make Star Wars Muppet Babies. Like, have a series that is all the Star Wars characters as little babies hanging out in a nursery. Get Chewie, get Luke, get them all there. That show sells itself. Have, like, you know, Darth Vader and Palpatine be, like, like the sort of mumbly sort of, uh, you know, caretaker that looks after them. Make this show. Print the money, Disney. <laughs> well, I hope that there are Disney executives listening to this right now. Bob, Bob, call me. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ryan. Really appreciate your thoughts on all of this. So happy to be here, Carson. Thank you so much. Many thanks again to Ryan McNutt for his thoughts on recent Star Wars films. Please stay tuned for another new episode of Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast, coming soon. A conversation about the best hard science fiction of the decade with Jesse Hiltz. Thanks again for listening to Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm reachable on Twitter at Flaw on the Iris if you'd like to talk about film or suggest a topic for the podcast. The theme music is by Mind's Eye. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>